You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. We'll take your Bible this morning and turn to Revelation chapter 20 today, Revelation chapter 20 this morning, and as you're turning there, uh, I hope that uh, you can bless the Lord uh, with your soul and whatever's going on physically or tangibly today, aren't you thankful that our joy and our worship is defined by what we have with God on a soul level? Uh, You do know at some point that this mortality will put on immortality, right? And all that uh, constrains us and constricts us and often is uh, sometimes even in this setting a hindrance to our worship. It feels like all that's going to be gone and uh, we will just worship God in a glorified body in a way that I don't know that we can fully process today. Um, We're going to look at Revelation 20 in just a minute. Before we do that, on the heels of that song we just sang, I wanted to, you'll see in the slide in front of you tonight, we're going to be hosting off-site what we're calling Fall Night of Worship. And if you haven't heard yet we're having that, you must have had your head under a rock or your ears. We've been trying to promote that and let that be known to our community and our county and to our church. So I want to invite you, tonight we'll not be meeting here in this room. We'll be meeting off-site at Orr Park over in Orville. And uh, we're going to have worship together. I'm going to share the gospel in that setting, and that'll be at 5.30 this evening at Schmidt. Hall there in Orr Park, and so I invite you to be a part of that. If you're going from here as a point of reference, unless you're from Orville, you know where this is at, you just take back Orville Road and then it kind of turns into North Crown Hill Road. You'll take that up to, uh, to Hall Road and then, or High uh, Street and then you just go right and then it's uh, on your left there. But if you need directions or have questions about that, uh, you can see us. And then afterwards tonight we'll have fellowship. Uh, together we'll have coffee and hot chocolate and bottled water and then some really tasty uh, cookies uh, afterwards. So if you don't come for any of the other stuff, you might want to come for that. But to encourage you to bring someone with you, be there yourself. And uh, our prayer is to pack, uh, fill that room and to have just a warm, uh, encouraging time of worship. One of the things I've been observing, and I'm not in any way meaning this as it relates to COVID or the vaccine or not the vaccine or any of that, but if you notice the narrative has been trying to pull us apart keep us apart, and our message as a church is not in any way um, discourage someone who has certain needs or interests or priorities that relates to all of that. We just know the body of Christ is meant to gather, and so we're trying to figure out how to do that and extend that to folks not just here in Worcester, zip code, but other places, and so we've been planning this for some time, and I hope that you'll be our partners in that by being there this evening, and come ready to sing your lungs out, and just let's just let's celebrate Jesus tonight and see how he draws men to himself. All right, Revelation 20, let's begin in verse 11. We'll read down through the end of the chapter. We looked at last week the encouraging uh, study on heaven and uh, studied that uh, in chapter 21. We're going back a chapter to chapter uh, 20. And let's begin in verse 11. John says this, I saw a great white throne, notice that, and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. Remember, we defined the different tiers of heaven. We'll get to that in just a moment. And there was found no place for them. And now these sobering words, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Notice that phrase. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, here it is again, every man according to, his, to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire, John says this is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so we're looking at in these last two weeks, we're talking about, for those here for the first time today, bite-sized spirituality, just little segments of eternity and its implications in the here and now. And these last two weeks, both this week and then in a couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at um, this idea of the judgments that await each of us as created beings of God. Today, we're going to look at the great white throne judgment. So this would relate to those who do not receive Christ as Savior. And then uh, in just a week or so, we will study on the judgment seat of Christ. But today, it is our task to look at this sobering study 
the great white throne judgment. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you for um, the fact that it is so clear. Uh, yes, it's compassionate, but Lord, it is clear. Uh, and Lord, it gives to us this awesome, incredible moment that awaits um, yet in the future those who uh, have yet to receive or do not receive Christ as Savior. And I pray, Father, that we would first be sobered by that if we don't know you as, as Savior, we've yet to accept Christ. And if we have, to rejoice in the fact that we will not be here in this moment experiencing what we rightfully deserve and yet what your grace and your mercy has freed us from. And I pray that you would temper our study with these two sides of this um, incredible moment that you've revealed to us. Uh, move and work in the service. Be honored in each aspect of it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning as we begin, uh, I had someone, I've had a few of you love on our family and others in our, uh, on our staff here as some have been appreciating us pastors this month, and I appreciate that. One of the gifts I got this past week was, it's so sitting on my desk, I think this was last Tuesday, uh, was this coffee. Do you see the coffee name? And you got to say it with a little flair, Jamaican me crazy, okay? That's just the way I say it in my head at least. And uh, the Blandons gave this to me, this card, their boys signed it. And then I think it's Miss Becca, it might be Nick, but it says toward the, the first line at the bottom, it says this, uh, we know we make you crazy sometimes, Pastor, so here's some coffee to make up for that. We, we make you crazy. Um, can I just say to you as it relates to God and our relationship with God, aren't you grateful that God not only reveals to us what drives him crazy, but what offends him, what's going to be judged by him, and the fact that there's a way to address that before this moment we're going to study today. That, to me, is such a gracious thing. I just want to say this as we look at, before we look at this text today. God's not being mean by giving us the end of Revelation 20, is he? Um, I've said this, and I'll say it again. Anytime God's talking about his wrath and his judgment, listen to me, it is preventative in nature. He's saying, I, I, I have this in the future that has to be addressed would you choose to do it my way? Would you let me love on you enough to give you uh, this truth? The other day I heard someone said this, Satan continues his efforts to make sin less offensive, heaven less appealing, hell less horrific, and the gospel less urgent. And that's what the study today is trying to push back against. The gospel is urgent because hell is horrific and heaven is glorious and there's an urgency as we consider the text this morning. So here in Revelation 20, we see God wrapping up really uh, the last remnants of human history and addressing all of the wrong that has been done and the wrongdoers. And so we see this judgment uh, that is before us. May I just say this carefully today to encourage you, but also to challenge you this judgment will not include one believer. This is for the lost. And so I hope as we study today, you'll let God comfort you or challenge you in the areas of need. So the question today is this, in a day where it feels like everybody's getting away with everything, how do we soberly process that God is keeping record and will deal with all wrong? Let's talk about today three characteristics of the great white throne judgment and, and some implications for us as we read his word today. And these are in your outline there in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Number one, first of all, let's talk about the fact that the throne here is an overwhelming throne. Look back at verse 11. He says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Uh, last night we had a youth activity, uh, bowling with pastor. We don't do marathoning with pastor uh, it's bowling because I don't have to move much, I guess, is at least the Cotner's nice way of saying that. Um, and so we, we went out, we had uh, some food here at the church, and then we went bowling. And uh, at, I think about halfway through our bowling, the lights went down, and now it's like glow-in-the-dark type bowling. And I was watching specifically Brandy and Dave, their oldest, Timothy, and, and I kind of could relate to him a bit. It was just a lot of stimulus, okay? The, it's loud, it's bright. And then on top of all that, you would, uh, Matthew, the, uh, one of the Cottoner's boys as well, Timothy's brother, he would take the ball to the end of the lane, right to the line, and then he would raise it up and just drop it. <laughs> and, and so I, they may have a lawsuit pending at some point here. But, uh, and I watched Timothy with all of this, and he didn't say anything to me for a while, but I would see him every time, so it's 
loud everything and then glowing balls and then his brother would and right when he would drop Timothy would just kind of almost just twitch like a ah you know uh, have you ever been in a situation where you're just you're overwhelmed with all that's going on can I tell you this moment is going to be more overwhelming than we can even imagine this morning it, it ought to move us deeply just to see this little peek behind if you will the the curtain of eternity this overwhelming moment. Not only is it overwhelming, it is also inescapable and irreversible. Uh, This is a moment that God wants we as his people to be aware of. Someone the other day said this. I don't know if this strikes you as profound, but it does me. Someone said this, one day we will all close our eyes to time and open them to eternity. Just like your eyes opened this morning as much as they could with wherever you're at in your life stage and you saw what was around you, at some point we will close them to this life for the last time and some will open their eyes to this moment. That ought to move us, that ought to challenge us in many different ways. All right, let's talk about different ways in which the throne here is overwhelming. Number one, there in your notes down the slides, it is overwhelmingly great. The first descriptive word used of this moment it is a great white throne it is overwhelmingly great why is it described as great well there are a lot of reasons for one the one who sits upon the throne is great but i think it is also more directly referencing the issues being addressed we're dealing with eternal destinies here this is a great moment and not as in it's exciting it's a weighty moment And may I just remind us today, if we're familiar somewhat or for the first time considering this moment in the future, the white throne judgment will be nothing like our modern courtrooms or cases. Um, There will be one judge, but there will be no jury. There will be prosecution, but there will be no defense. There will be a sentence, but there will be no appeal. This has a finality to it. There's a weightiness to this that we can only begin to imagine this morning. And one of the things I've noticed in the average courtroom in our day is that often the judgment involves a judgment by peers. That's one of our typically constitutional rights. There are no peers in this moment. There's only one who is great. There's only one who judges. And that one is always greater than you and me. Notice, secondly, he goes on to say, not only is it great, it is white. Number two, it is overwhelmingly white. And I think this speaks to the perfection and the purity of the one on the throne and the decisions that are handed down, that are meted out. There's no question as to the integrity of the judge or the right to give out the judgments that we'll talk more about in just a moment. This is a very white and pure and possessing great holiness and integrity kind of place. Why is it a place that is white and pure as it's handing out such, such devastating judgment? Can we not say in light of Calvary that there is no excuse in this moment? We cannot condemn God or cast any ill light or uh, throw some shade God's way to try to dilute the accountability that every sinner uh, must account for. And so God here holds the standard, does not alter the requirements to enter into eternal life, and he will be right to do so. All right, thirdly, number three, look, if you will, at the end of verse, or the middle of verse 11, he says, it is not only great and it is white, number three, it is a throne. Number three, jot this down, it is overwhelmingly terrible, this throne, and it goes on to talk about that heaven and earth flee from it, the face of the one sitting upon the throne. It is a terrible place. It's great, it's white, and it's terrible. And this speaks to the authority, the majesty, the holiness of the one upon the throne, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does he mean by, in verse 11, he says that the face, uh, from whose face, the Lord Jesus, the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. I think we see here the gravity of this situation, that, that, that it moves uh, everything that is around it. It's very likely in this moment that God is uh, doing away with the earth and the universe that is, is now known because we see in chapter 21, remember we studied this a couple of weeks ago, um, that there is a new heaven and a new earth. And so we see this pivot that is occurring at the end of chapter 20, laying the foundation for the new heaven and the new earth. And so this is a, a seminal moment. This is a monumental moment in human history. Thus, in this moment, the physical universe is going to be purged of all sin 
brought about by Satan's rebellion and Adam's fall. And from this moment on, time as we know it is no more. Uh, it, it, there's a drastic change that is about to occur in the text, and it is one of great terribleness. Now, it's interesting here that the great white throne that is referenced here is different from the other throne. There's another throne from which God is giving out judgment. And over 30 times in the book of Revelation, it talks about the throne, the throne, the throne. This is a different throne than the throne from which the Lamb is judging our world. It's apparently best that we can assess, at least from what I've been able to study on it, it's located neither in heaven nor in earth, likely somewhere maybe even in space. The, as we referenced last time, the second heaven, it's, it, it, it awaits those, uh, and in this place God will judge them. Now, what's the application of this? Pastor, why do we studying today on this Sunday about the great white throne judgment? What does that mean for us, if, whether we know Christ or we don't know Christ? How does that apply I don't know about you, sometimes I feel like everybody's getting away with everything, don't you? It's just like evil almost isn't even worth calling evil, because why even call it out? It's not going to be dealt with, and we just kind of deny it, and even just kind of, we, we keep dumbing down moral standards just to feel better about the deviancy that's just everywhere in our culture today. We excuse it, we validate it, we see others who are very uh, belligerent in what they stand for and what they stand against. And if you're like me, it may leave you wondering, will anything ever be done to the perpetrators of injustice, the ones who willfully are attacking and assaulting God, His Word, His holiness, His purity? And the answer here in verse number 11 is a comforting yes. God will deal with all wrong. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13, it says this, Neither is there any creature, any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked, and open unto him, notice this, with whom we have to do. It all comes down to one person, one throne, one judge, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before God can usher in this new heaven and earth, he must deal with sin. He has to deal with those who are willfully sinners. And so he gives us uh, this comforting reality that he will judge all wrong. Now, you may be sitting there today thinking, Pastor, that sounds a little bit too fantastical. That seems like maybe an, uh, an ancient belief or thought that really doesn't seem to bode much uh, truth in the future. Can I remind you of a guy named Noah who talked about the judgment of God? Do you remember him? Um, the other day, someone was talking about conspiracy theorists, and I am, I am not a conspiracy theorist, okay, at least in the sense that's often used in our culture today. I'm very careful to keep our church and, and our ministry on message with the Lord's help. It's tempting. I have my own conspiracies I could float out to you today. But somebody said this, Noah was a conspiracy theorist, and then it began to rain. And I'm telling you, this moment is coming, isn't it? It, 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 we, either God is faithful and true and he's going to deal with all wrong or he's not. And God has bound himself to human time and space and to his word. He will follow through. And I was thinking about this. I don't know if you've been to the Ark um, uh, encounter in uh, Kentucky or the, the Creation Museum. I remember the first time that I went there, this was before the Ark, just when they had the Creation Museum. There's an exhibit uh, about the flood. And I remember, this is me as an adult man, almost just getting choked up looking at they had like a 3D model of the, the floodwaters rising. And one of the things that was striking to me, I remember, and I remember seeing this as a kid and being moved by this too, but on the mountain peaks of this, 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 um, this portrayal of a certain portion of the world, people clinging to the mountaintops as the waters uh, engulfed them. God does what he says. On the positive side of the ledger, but also on this side, the judgment of God. You can count on it. He will do what he has promised. What a challenge. What a comfort to us today. One author I was reading said this to bring this kind of to application. He said, the conditions of this life are transitory. All the things we're navigating this morning, they are only transitional in nature. They fade into relative insignificance when compared with eternity to come. Listen to these words. The nature of the future state is far more intense than anything known in this life. This is an overwhelming moment. The positives of heaven and glory that we studied a week or so ago, and this moment, they are more intense than anything we can imagine 
in this life. All right, go down to verse number 12, and let's look at a second characteristic of this throne. Now as it begins to ratchet down the application uh, to us if we don't know Christ and to others who don't. Verse 12, and I saw the dead. This would be a description of those who are unsaved, have yet to put faith in Christ, small and great. Stand before God, and the books were opened, another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. Number two, the throne is judgmental. So the throne, first of all, is overwhelming. Number two, it is a very judgmental place. Um, any in the room today have a uh, membership to Planet Fitness, which is just down the road from us? Uh, you, you think just by saying that you're more fit, you know, and the rest of us are bums? I don't. Have any of you found that have a membership there or somewhere else that just having the membership itself doesn't make much of a difference? I'm so much more fit. I have a membership. You know, you never go or never participate, never put in the effort. Um, one of the things that Planet Fitness is known for, and if you drive by the one that's just down the road from us here, they have this plastered everywhere, but I think I've seen it at least in the past. On the wall, you can see it from the road at night, judgment-free zone. Have you seen that? And it's on everything. It's on almost every... Uh, exercise machine. You can tell how much I exercise. I can't even think of what one is called right now. The thing that it's just brutal. Okay. But anyway, and it's on them and it's on the walls and it's on their literature. No ju or judgment free zone. And it says it everywhere. This, this mantra, it's just, they pump it, they pump it, they pump it. You know, what's fascinating about that story and that mantra is they actually spell the word judgment wrong. And back in the mid nineties, I remember this story when planet fitness was kind of just getting going it was this big thing. Are they going to, because they spell it judgment. If you look at your outline, I tried to make sure I spelled it right every time. There's no E between the G and the M. But if you look next time you're there, because all of us will be here now all week, I'm sure at, at Plant Fitness, look at it. They have the E is there, uh, unlike on this word right here that the E isn't. And, and back in the mid 90s, they had this big, are we going to change it or not? And kind of the assessment, I remember this interview, I went back and found it. One of the spokesmen said this, spelling judgment with an E started out as a mistake back in uh, our earlier days. We considered changing it to the traditional spelling, but decided to keep it because it fits with our brand personality. We are a judgment-free, uh, we are judgment-free on all matters. So what better way to demonstrate that than by keeping the incorrect spelling of the word judgment? Isn't that how our world is? We, we just, we excuse, we, we fudge the details on, regu on a regular basis. And I think, listen to me, I think we've gotten so used to blurring the lines on right and wrong that this moment, when we really think about it, it jars even us who should know better. God is going to cross every T and dot every I. He either is going to do it through the finished work of Jesus Christ and our faith and trust in it, or he's going to do it in this moment. And so God is judged. There's, there's no way to soften that. There's no way to, to, to kind of uh, beat around the bush on this truth as we see in God's Word. All right, let's talk about a couple of areas quickly as it relates to God being judged. Number one, we see in this place judgmental consistency. The first word there is consistency. God is consistent. How is He consistent? Notice a couple of ways in which He manifests this. First in the beginning of verse 12, and then in just a moment, the beginning of verse 13. It says here in verse 12, and I saw the dead, notice this description of the dead, small and great, stand before God. Number one, underneath of that, this judgment will be consistently impartial. We see the dead, all of the dead, in this moment being judged by God. Who is this a reference to? Well, earlier in verse number 5, you notice the rest of the dead, it says, back in Revelation 20 and verse 5, the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. And so this encompasses all of those who have, uh, from the past, uh, that have yet to put faith in Jesus Christ, the Old Testament, uh, the Great Tribulation, those who uh, have lived at any point in human history, they are uh, now being included in this moment. Since we see in ver earlier in this chapter that the dead in Christ are resurrected during the first resurrection, this now, in verse number 12, is the second resurrection. Anyone who wasn't a part of the first, they weren't a believer in Jesus Christ, they are now being assembled. And notice it describes these dead, these unbelievers, as both small and great. Small and great. 
Um, the other night uh, here in Worcester, we have a country club golf course. And just like I'm not a member at Planet Fitness, I also am not a member at our country club. But my boy Ian golfed for the city of Worcester, and so they had a banquet there. And uh, I was just sitting there thinking, I, I am not a country club material kind of guy. I don't mind being there. The food was great. It was fun. But I'm not the, what you would describe as the upper crust of any society I've been a part of. I'm just, I think I'm average. We all probably think we are. But it doesn't matter whether we're the country club caliber or we're the, the least amongst us today from a societal perspective. All those who do not know Jesus Christ will be here in this moment. It's interesting in the book of Revelation, it uses small and great five times. And you may want to mine that out of Revelation. You can go back and read that. But God is very clear throughout the book of Revelation that small and great are both included in his dealings with man. By the way, I remind you back to verse number 11 where it describes this throne as great. So no matter who we are or who we're not, the throne is greater than us. And so uh, this impartial judgment of God, you may be well esteemed in the community, but I'm telling you, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, you're going to be here in this moment. And me as well. Um, this, this, is a, this is a sobering thought that this judgment is impartial. Then look if you will at the beginning of verse 13. It says, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. That's interesting as well. Number two, this judgment will be consistently inclusive. So it's impartial. Number two, it is inclusive. So this is not just those who are alive in this moment uh, or were shortly deceased. It's for those who have uh, perished in days gone by, even in the depths of the sea. Here we see clearly that that this statement, death and hell gave up the dead, means the physical bodies of the unsaved will be joined with their spirit, which has been in hell since the time of death. And the mention of the sea here, giving up the dead, makes clear that regardless of how far the body has disintegrated, that God will reassemble it. Do you see again the attention to detail? God is going to deal with that person that you feel like got away with something or deal with you that thinks you're getting away with something. If he does it to this level, he's going to deal with all wrongdoers. And that confronts, obviously, the teaching we talked about a few weeks ago of soul annihilation. When you die, it's not over. This moment awaits us if we don't know Christ as Savior. And so this judgment uh, is, is inclusive. In fact, if you go down to verse 15, I love the word found here because it it, it makes sure we understand it includes all. It says, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life. Whosoever. Um, we probably have read studies. Maybe this has even impacted us personally, but we read of criminals who get off the hook, right? They go into the courtroom, and they have certain resources and connections, and they build a certain narrative, and we know it's false, but somehow they get off on a technicality. We could even think of, of famous cases of that nature. There are wrongs being done that have never even been addressed in a courtroom that the court of law isn't even aware of. That's not the case in this moment. God will deal with all who are wrong. And so there is a judgmental consistency on the part of God. All right, go back to verse number 12, and notice the end of the verse. He says, so the dead and great stand before God. What now happens? And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in those books. Number two, jot this down. Not only is there judgmental consistency, number two, there is judgmental thoroughness. God is thorough. Um, we were talking about this today in our small group. One of the things I'm struck by, God, when he's meeting out judgment, you don't see him here raging. He, he doesn't just mow him down. There's a thoroughness, there's a carefulness, there's a restraint to the wrath even of a holy God that has every right to just wipe these people off the face of the map, as we would say. And so we see a thoroughness on God's part. The other day I was reading an article, I was talking about, I think this is still in effect, uh, we have one of our, our girls that was in our youth group um, at the church, we're on staff in Michigan, she's in Japan right now, her husband who's in the military, but just the other day I read this, I think it's still in effect. In 2008, Japan enacted a national law requiring their citizens to have their waistlines measured. Have you heard about this? Um, you think we've had our rights infringed lately. Um, this is very personal in nature. Those Japanese whose waistline is greater than the government's prescribed standard will undergo diet counseling. They actually have to go to counseling. 
Um, and it's, it's amazing what accountability does, right? And I don't know if you would pass. I, I, I don't know that I would either. Uh, but this idea of accountability. Can I just tell you, God is thorough. And I think we've become so laid back in our view of God that it just, it just doesn't matter anymore. And God doesn't really care. And God's just kind of someday going to be a tour guide in heaven to just show us the glories. God's a very precise God. He's a very thorough God. And And so we see that being evidenced here. And here would be maybe the thought, you may want to jot this down, if God keeps track of it and holds people accountable to it, then whatever it is matters. If God keeps track of it and holds people accountable for it, then whatever it is, it does matter, right? For God to take the time to do this and to keep the records, he's not doing so on a whim. He's not doing so carelessly. There is a thoroughness to the God that we claim to worship and know. All right, a couple things under that quickly. Number one, this judgment will include thorough records. And we see that in verse 12 that we just read. There are books. Imagine how many books and the the scale and the scope and the range of those books as God records all things that one day he will hold the unsaved to. This judgment will include thorough records. What are the books that are referenced here? Well, we see, first of all, that the Lamb's Book of Life, I believe, is open. We see that alluded to here. Uh, This book would be open to confirm. They would look at the book and then the person and say, as they look at the book, your name is not here, confirming that that person should be here at this throne. And so first, thoroughly, God addresses, are you, if you will, here on mistake? Is your name in the Lamb's Book of Life? And as each person's name is read, it is not found in the Lamb's Book of life. And then the books that are referenced here in verse 12 uh, likely references the, the specific works of these unregenerate uh, people, what they've done, what they haven't done, and a record of all uh, that has defined and directed their life. Um, and so we see that obviously God judges them by his book, by the word. Christ said in John 12, 48, the word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. And so the standard of God's word contrasted with the book recording uh, the works of man. Every sinner will be held accountable for the truth he has heard in this life. They will answer for what they've done with the life that God has entrusted to them. Now, I just want to say this and we'll move on. This is not saying we're saved by works, right? All of us, if it's by works, we all deserve to be in this moment, right? If our righteousness is as filthy rags, then we all come up way short, right? We've all fallen short of God's glory. But when we stand only based upon our works, we will be condemned. We will be judged by God. And so these who've not received Christ as Savior, their own works uh, will be what they're judged for. And in a week or so, when we studied on the judgment seat of Christ, that will also be a judgment of works, will it not? Uh, And so this is a judgment of works in in our own effort. And as these are read, it will lead to now the judgment of God being imposed. Maybe just to help you transition this into now eternity. So you would obviously have hell. We studied about that a few weeks ago. And then heaven. Uh, prior to the resurrection, this second resurrection of the great white throne judgment, all of the unsaved dead suffer the same degree of hell. Uh, it, it's somewhat of a consistent universal experience on their part. The word hell that is used in the Bible, the word hell that typically is used, tends to refer to the place of torment before the great white throne judgment. The lake of fire uh, is a reference to the place of torment after the great white throne judgment. And the great white throne judgment goes from its universal to now degrees are implemented out based upon what is recorded uh, in the books. And so the suffering will be in proportion to what the books record. Although all humans will be consigned to either heaven or death, there will be degrees in both of those places. And in this case, the punishment will be meted out by the Lamb of God, by Jesus Christ. And of all the things I think we'll answer for, to be honest with you today, I think, and we talked about this when we talked about hell, it will be the opportunities we spurned that God gave us to receive Christ as Savior. Including, listen to me today, October the 17th, 2021. And if that's you today as a young person or adult, this is something someday you and I will both answer for. Uh, What are we doing with the grace and the gospel that God uh, has so freely given? Christ in Matthew 11 
it says, then he began to abrade the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. And then he addresses specifically Capernaum. He says, and thou Capernaum, which art exalted above under the heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee, while he was here in his earthly ministry, had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Verse 24, but I say unto you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. And can I just remind you, we must steward well the opportunities God has given us. And if that's you today, as it relates to salvation, may you respond. All right, then if you will go to the end of verse 12, he goes on to say, the dead were judged out of these things which were written in the books, notice this, according to their works. And then the end of verse 13, they were judged every man according to their works. So the judgment will include thorough records. Number two, it will include thorough merits. It's based upon the merits. What we've done earns us uh, judgment in the following degrees. And so God is very thorough here in how he deals with sin. All judgments, including the judgment seat of Christ, are a judgment of works. Here, as it relates to the unsaved, it's not whether they're saved or not. It is a confirmation of the destiny that God has directed them to. I was thinking about this. Um, I just I try to, as best I can, help you come into the moment, and not again in any way that's inconsistent with Scripture. And I can only do that if I go there myself first. And so I've tried to, as hard as and scary as it is in a way, I've tried to walk into this room as I've been reading. What would it feel like? And, and what the thing that that I took away from reading the text and just meditating on is more what the sounds will be. The the sob, the silence just realizing it's over. There's no way forward other than what the judge is about to direct me in. There's an inevitability, there's an awesome, ter- awesome terribleness that should move us to salvation or to share this message with those who've yet to hear it. And when the books are open, the unbelievers will not stand there and give excuses, they will stand there speechless, won't they? And each of us deserve to be in this place without the finished work of Christ. Romans 3 and verse 19, speaking of the law, which I think is previewing what this moment will be, says this, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them which are under the law. And without Christ we are under the law. That every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. And when the law is actually applied in this moment, there will be silence. I was reading the other day, I've heard this story before, I don't know if you've heard of a guy named uh, Muhammad Ali or not, he was a very quiet, subdued man back in his prime, yeah, right, Um, and uh, Muhammad Ali was on an airplane, and uh, they were getting ready to take off, and the flight attendant came up to Mr. Ali and said, "Um, you need to put your seatbelt on, and Ali paused for probably only a brief moment, and then he responded, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the flight attendant uh, very quickly replied, Superman don't need no airplane either. Put your seatbelt on. <laughs> isn't, isn't, that, isn't that true? We all think we're Superman, but we cannot get beyond this moment without Jesus Christ. You're not good enough, and you're not free enough, and you're not resourced enough to do this. We need help. On our own merits, we fail. On our own merits, we deserve to be here. And I'm grateful that God gives us a way out. And so the thought to be today would be this, and then we'll move to our last point. Are you willing to accept that God is the judge of all the earth, and none, including you and everybody you know, will avoid it? There's no one that will avoid this moment without Christ. We can't escape it. We can't enter into God's presence and glory, but we must come through Jesus Christ. And so how do we know that we will not experience the same judgment we see read here if we know Christ as Savior? Can I remind you of a few verses? Hebrews 8 and verse 12, their iniquities will I remember no more. Then that verse just take on a little extra hue of glory when we contrast it with this chapter. He will remember our iniquities no more. David in Psalm 103, he doth not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's the contrast to this judgment, only possible through the grace of God. An author I was reading said this, hell should not be thought of as primarily punishment visited on unbelievers by a vindictive God. Don't we hear that a lot in our day? How could a loving God, we should not view it through that lens. He said this in contrast, 
We should view it as the natural consequence of the sinful life chosen by those who reject Christ. That, that's what this moment is. We have the choice, brethren. We have the choice, dear visitor, today. If you go there, it's because you choose to. All right, let's end today in verse 14 and 15 on a third characteristic of this throne that should move us deeply today in maybe several different directions. Verse 14, and death and hell were cast in a lake of fire. This is uh, the second death. Lastly, this throne is condemning. So there's, there's the terribleness of it. There's the awesome, overwhelming aspects of it. There's the judgment. And then ultimately, there is the condemnation. Um, I heard this. I don't know if this cracks you up. This, I find this hilarious. Someone said, do you ever walk up, uh, I'm sorry, do you ever wake up, kiss the person sleeping beside you, and feel glad that you're alive? I just did, and apparently I will never be allowed to fly on this airline ever again. I, I think that's hilarious. Um, can, can I just say this to you? Listen to me. There is not coming a moment where we just kiss and make up with God. If you wait until this moment, that's not even afforded you, that opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. I think many times if we're not careful, we, we keep pushing back the condemnation of God, and there's always going to be another chance, and I'll be able to convince him, and there'll be some sort of scales involved, and the weight uh, will justify uh, the good against the bad, and we use excuse after excuse after excuse. There is a point, listen to me, of no return. And this throne ultimately meets out condemnation. What is condemned in this moment? Look at verse 14 again. He says, and death, and death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. And so it gives these two words, and why does he say death and hell? What are those a reference to that are cast into the lake of fire? First of all, we see condemning bodies. There are bodies that are condemned. The word death that's found here seems to allude to the material part of man, specifically mankind that is unsaved. And this body is represented by the word death, and death is cast, the body is cast into uh, the lake of fire. It's interesting that this is the moment that death ends. Uh, remember we talked about a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was last week with heaven, that there's no more death and we are free of death. This is the moment where death ends. Death itself seems to not be abolished until the great white throne judgment is set up and human destiny is settled forever and then death is uh, dealt with one final time. At this point, each believer is given a new body suited to suffer in the lake of fire forever. That's a horrific thought to think about today just as we who know Christ will have a glorified body, this means there is an actual, eternal separation from God in a conscious, unceasing, physical torment. This body that God gives to these that he rightfully judges for all of eternity. All right, and then lastly, notice it says not only death, but hell. Death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. Number two, not only are bodies condemned, number two, spirits are condemned spirits are condemned. I don't know if you struggle with procrastination or not. I do at times, especially if it's not, I mean, things are important to me. I'm very motivated, but things that someone else that I'm very close to may give me called a honey to-do list. I may procrastinate on some of those things. It's funny how procrastination is something we often validate or excuse, the spirit of procrastination. I heard this the other day. This is a great thought, convicting thought. Procrastination, an author said, is the arrogant assumption that God owes you another opportunity to do what you had time to do. Can I read that again? Procrastination is the arrogant assumption that God owes you another opportunity to do what you had time to do. And I think often the spiritual aspects of our rebellion as mankind, we, we diminish those or excuse those, and God will someday deal with that spirit that so often rebels against him. And so the immaterial part of the unsaved being, the soul, the spirit, uh, will be cast into uh, the lake of fire. There's a soul level. And remember we talked about this, I think the worst part of hell is the absence of God. It's not the fire and the darkness and the shrieks and all the things that will be a part of that season and, and that, that experience for those that don't know Christ. It will be God is not there. That spirit that so needs God and longs for God will have that unsatisfied sensation for all of eternity. All right, notice a couple of things about that quickly. First, you see in verse 14, he says, 
This is the second death, this finality, this second death. And it is an ongoing thing. In fact, go back to verse 10 very quickly, lest we think that there's kind of almost, again, this annihil it's over and, it, and we're done. Back in verse 10, notice, it says, The devil that deceived them was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet are, and shall be tor- uh, tormented day and night forever and ever. When God does this, still there are these described in verse number 10. They're still there. They're still suffering, and so this moment will go on and on and on, the, conde- the condemning of our spirits. And then verse 15, again, this inclusive kind of bringing this to an application. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life. I love how God puts that there. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. I find that striking the way he says that. Do you? He doesn't go into what they have done. It's just, you just don't have your name in the book. The regret of that moment of God, there's no glee here, there's no celebration here, there's no ha ha ha. What if your name is just not in the book of life? And so this spirit that willfully rejects God will be condemned for eternity. And I was thinking about this as it relates to spirit. We often use the term spiritual to refer to religious people, right? Well, they're spiritually minded. They're a spiritual person. There are a lot of spiritual people that will be judged in this moment because they've not received Jesus as Savior. Um, Now, encouraging verse, go back to verse 6 for a moment. For those of us that don't want to be here and hopefully have already chosen to not be here, back in verse 6 it says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. Notice this. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And so we don't have to be a part of this second death. We don't have to be a part of this condemnation. We simply must choose Christ. I think one of the greatest weaknesses of postmodern Christianity of why we have so little evangelistic fervor and passionate gratitude and just God is great and he's good and I'm on fire for him is because we focus on chapter 21 of Revelation in our theology without remembering chapter 20 of Revelation. We're really good on heaven's going to have this and not have this. And remind you, we don't deserve to be there. We deserve to be in the moments described at the end of chapter 20. And so it is only by God's grace that we're free of this moment. Let's end today, if you will, by going back to Revelation chapter 13. Would you turn there, back there for a moment? We're in chapter 20. We'll go back to chapter 13. And so if, if we want the good parts of the Bible, we have to accept the tougher parts of the Bible, and that would be one, one of the ones that we've read today, which is Revelation 20. But go, if you will, back to chapter 13 and verse number 8. Revelation 13 and verse 8. And as you're turning there, I've come across this story a couple times, and I came across it the other day, and every time I read it, it just it warms my heart. I wanted to share it before we read this, this verse. Um, There's a story told of pioneers who were making their way across the central states to a distant place that had been open for homesteading. So this would have been several, several years ago. They traveled in covered wagons drawn by oxen, and the process, uh, the progress was necessarily slow. One day, the caravan was horrified to note a long line of smoke in the west, stretching for miles across the prairie. And it soon became evident that the dried grass was burning fiercely and coming toward them rapidly. They had, uh, they had crossed a river the day before, but it would be impossible to get back to that before the flames would be upon them. One man only, one man only seemed to have an understanding uh, as to what uh, could be done. He gave the command to those around him to set fire to the grass behind them. Then when a space was burned over, the whole company moved back upon it, that spot. As the flames roared toward them from the west, a little girl cried out in terror, are you sure we should, that we shall not all be burned up? The leader replied, My child, the flames cannot reach us here, for we are standing where the fire has already been. Where the fire has already been. Our judgment has been tasted. Our judgment has been felt and absorbed by one person. Who is that? That's Jesus. Look at this verse here. I love this. The, even the great white throne judgment possesses great potential 
for worship and praise. Look at verse uh, number 8 of Revelation 13. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. All right, this is at the apex of the, the devil himself and the Antichrist, whose names are not written. Notice the end of this phrase. We find tucked into this a great truth. The book of, the, of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The book of life of the Lamb slain. The reason we're not having the books open and we're being judged out of them is because if we know Christ, we're in a book with his name on it, the lamb that has been slain, the lamb that's, the lamb that's tasted death for every man, the lamb that offers to us abundant and eternal life, free of judgment and consequence, all through the grace of our God. And the names in this book uh, that are exempt from the judgment we've studied today are not saved based on the basis of their deeds. They're saved based on the the deeds and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so we have, we can opt out of this judgment. We can opt out of it through the name of Jesus Christ. I have a pastor friend of mine. He's very creative in his evangelistic fervor, and he's always challenging me, not necessarily directly, but just by his example. And last night he posted this picture, and I love this. Um, he was talking about finding ways to be a testimony. And here is the top two lines, if you would open up an internet-oriented device. It's a weird way of saying it. Something that connects to the internet. I don't know where that came from. Thanks, Josh. Uh, he, he has named his, his Wi-Fi network Jesus Saves Alone. So every time his neighbors pull up their laptop or their phone, Jesus Saves Alone. Isn't that cool? Now, can I tell you this as we finish today? There's coming a moment where there's no longer access to that network. Password, timing, everything's done. There, there's no opportunity. And so first of all today, can I encourage you, if you don't know Jesus saves alone, you've, let the, you've yet to let him be your Lord and Savior. Seize the opportunity that's afforded you today. And if you do know him as Savior, what are you doing about it? Who are you sharing the password with? Who are you sharing the network name with? Jesus saves alone. Here's the question, we'll pray. Will you choose to fully understand and live in light of the great white throne's overwhelming, judgmental, and condemning realities by rejoicing in and receiving all that Jesus offers? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word today.